You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Are you looking for a podcast that your whole family can enjoy that asks the deep philosophical questions like, do trees fart? If you are, then you'll love Tumble, a science podcast for kids. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Join us as we explore stories of science discovery, from butts to animals, dinosaurs, astronomy, and everything in between. You'll love these stories, and you'll learn something new. Find and follow Tumble Science Podcast for Kids wherever you get your podcasts, or at sciencepodcastforkids.com. Welcome to Our Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. Today, another exciting guest, uh, author and professor, uh, Dr. David Scheel. First, I just want to say, hello, David. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me on, Chris. Good to, good to have a chance to chat with you. Yeah, yeah. Excited. Uh, David's on the uh, other side of the Pacific Ocean, actually quite far north from me here in New Zealand. He's up in Alaska. And, you know, David's the uh, professor of marine biology at Alaska Pacific University. He has an, an amazing book out now, uh, Many Things Under a Rock, The Mysteries of Octopuses. A, a fan favorite, David. I, I, I can tell you, uh, you know, there's a lot of people around the world that love octopus. Uh, just a quick shout out to Octo Nation. I, I don't know if you know who they are, but it's the largest octopus oh, yeah. fan club on the planet. Yeah. Warren Kyle, yeah, one, or, wonderful organization. Yeah, Warren's yeah, great. yeah. Warren uh, Carlisle. I, I spoke to him a couple of years ago, and he really uh, puts out a lot of stuff. Follow him on social media. He just loves seeing uh, the octopus and all the things they do. So that's what we're going to talk about today, uh, David. If just just kind of starting off with this, I always like to talk, ask our our guests to talk about their background in your education, but where did all this start for you? Oh, that's a fantastic question with so many different possible answers. I mean, the simplest answer is, you know, I was excited when I had a chance to start researching octopuses, probably because I had read Jacques Cousteau's book, The Soft Intelligence, which was about cephalopods when I was a kid, uh, when I was probably 10 or 13. And so that kind of, you know, launched me into being excited about octopuses and cephalopods. I hadn't, when I started researching them, I, I hadn't had a lot of interaction with them or experience with them at that point. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you did, uh, when you were, cause you got your bachelor's, I believe your master's and your PhD. What did you see yourself being a marine biologist or was it just nature ecology in, in general yeah it was it was a bit of a you know misspent youth in some ways uh i got my bio i, I did get a bio i always kind of wanted to be a biologist um and uh i got my biology undergraduate degree uh at rensselaer polytechnic in new york state and then um i went to university of minnesota for my graduate degrees but I didn't know what I wanted to study at that mm -hmm. point. I was just looking for opportunity. I actually ended up working in um, Serengeti in Tanzania. Uh, and I studied African lions, cooperation, and that kind of stuff. And then, um, then I did a 
global climate uh, postdoc uh, at a time when the United States doesn't didn't believe in global climate change. Oh wait, we still don't believe in global climate change. Yeah, um, <laughs> some and some. Uh, yeah, something up there. And then it, eventually, I took a job in Cordova, Alaska, and that's really where I transitioned over into marine subjects. Um, uh, you know, I had a number of different grants initially. I worked on killer whales. I worked on seabirds. I worked on salmon. Um, I worked in intertidal habitats. Uh, and, and I started this uh, octopus research. And, and that was kind of the one that stuck. Yeah, no, I I, I know reading your, your CV and, and then parts of the book, you know, you, you studied in Africa and Alaska. And, and it's interesting you did. And I think you did some African painted dog research back in the day uh, with that. But really a focus of behavior, right? Yeah, I've always been focused on uh, behavioral ecology and animal behavior. That's kind of the the part that I find kind of exciting. Yeah. Oh, it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it and is. you know, the, I was just gonna say the octopuses are kind of amazing that way because they're, you know, they're so different from. Uh, in some ways, they seem like they ought to be so different from what we know. Uh, you know, in our more familiar animals, the birds and the mammals. Uh, and yet there's a lot of convergence, a lot of things that are that are interestingly similar, but expressed in underwater from a mollusk instead of, uh, you know, instead of by your pet dog or or the birds outside the window. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, we just uh, we just released an episode a couple of weeks ago on giant squid covered a little bit of the colossal squid, too, because there's some a lot of crossover. So this interview is 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 timely. So they are amazing cephalopods and, and the I guess the behavior. And I, and I want to get into some of that today. But just to, to, to kind of start off, you know, going down this path of, of octopus. The book's called Many Things Under a Rock. The Mystery of Octopuses just was released in June of this year. Can you just kind of give a general overview to the audience and, or the listeners and, and what the book's about? It was a very easy read for me. I, I was very much into it. And I wanted to read more because, again, you just love these creatures. It's crazy. It, they're just they're just phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, many things under a rock is really stories that ought to be told about octopuses. I think more than anything else. Um, you know, one of the things that was odd. I, I moved from Houston, Texas, where I worked at uh, University of Houston, a city of you know a million plus people, whatever the population size. I don't know. Uh, but I moved from there to Cordova, Alaska, a bush town of 5,000 people. And, you know, it was a big switch. And it was really intriguing. I met a lot of people from Walks of Lives I hadn't hung out with a lot before. You know, I'd, I'd been in graduate school. I'd been doing a postdoc and hung out on college campuses. And now I was hanging out with fishermen and meeting Alaska natives who, um, you know, still got some of their food from subsistence lifestyles and dealing with a lot of people who were involved in the, the aftermath of the, the sort of havoc that was wreaked by the Exxon Valdez oil spill, which had happened just a few years prior. And so it was just a big shift for me in terms of what I was seeing in the world. And it just, it just really fired up my imagination and my my interest. And uh, it seems like when you meet people that hang around the water and that are interested in animals, um, everybody's got an octopus story. And so I just started thinking about all these, these different stories that were out there. And eventually I, you know, I thought, yeah, these should be told. These are great stories. They're fun, exciting. They're interesting. And they're all tied in to the kind of an animal that the octopus is. And of course, because they're stories to the kind of animal that, that people are. And so um, many things under a rock is a chance to, to talk about octopuses uh, and talk about all the kind of amazing science that um, is being done with octopuses in the context of these fascinating stories. No, it does. And, and, and you do bring... Uh... A, a lot of different aspects of it and a lot of different angles on them. It's not just a, you know, a book about octopus facts. It's telling stories. And, and one that, that I, I, I just to kind of start, start off a little bit is 
this globster. I, I, I haven't heard that term before. You, you talk <laughs> about it in the book and the, the octopus giganti- giganteus, the, the St. Augustine yeah. monster. The St. Augustine monster. That is a great story. You know, and that came out of this very real concern that I had. I mean, I, you know, I'd worked in, in Africa on lions, but, you know, when, when we were capturing a lion, we would, we would sedate it first with a dart gut before anyone got out of the Land Rovers and, and did anything to it after that. But, you know, I was preparing to take teams of divers underwater on scuba to um, try and capture giant Pacific octopuses. You know, they got giant right in the name and they got eight arms. My divers only have, you know, two. So the battle's a little uneven, right, to begin with. And we didn't, there was no good way to tranquilize them. So we were capturing them, you know, fresh and feisty, if you will. And, you know, we just wanted to capture them to measure the body size and learn a little bit more about them. And then we'd put them back. But um, I really didn't know how big a giant Pacific octopus could get. And this seemed like a pretty reasonable question to ask. And uh, if you looked at some of the scientific papers that were available then, they were, they were mostly from Washington. And, you know, they seemed to cap out at around a size of around uh, 60 pounds. Um, and that's a pretty big animal to wrestle with mm-hmm. underwater. Mm-hmm. But the thing was, people where I was in Cordova were telling me about catching 100-pound octopuses right outside my office door, basically, in the water mm-hmm. there. And, uh, you know, some of the Alaska native legends from the area were about animals that were bigger than that. And so, you know, you say, all right, well, how big do octopuses get? And you look into the scientific literature and there was this carcass that washed ashore in St. Augustine, Florida. And, um, you know, you have roots in Florida, so maybe you, Mm -hmm. you know about Mm -hmm. this or you know more about St. Augustine, but it was back in the 18, late 1800s. And uh, photos and samples were sent to the Smithsonian. And um, A.E. Verrill, he's one of the guys who first described, scientifically described the, um, the giant squid, uh, Architeuthis, that you mm-hmm. were talking mm-hmm. about. And uh, so he's a very important scientist of the time. Right. He works for the, you know, the premier uh, United States science agency, the Smithsonian. And uh, he describes this octopus, octopus giganteus based on this carcass that washed up in, uh, in St. Augustine, Florida. And it, the carcass is huge. I mean, you know, the mound of flesh is mm-hmm. almost as tall as a man on the beach. Uh, it probably weighs a couple of tons. It's got tendrils coming out of it that look like octopus arms. It's got a big sack body. It washed up during a huge storm. And so no one really knew where it came from. It was pretty beat up. It was partially rotted. Skin had been eroded off, so there wasn't a lot of clues what it was. And so the guy who discovered it, uh, DeWitt, I think his name was, he sends photos of it to Verrill at the Smithsonian, and Verrill immediately publishes a paper in the journal Science describing this new species, Octopus giganteus, an octopus that weighs several tons. And if I'm putting divers in the water to catch several <laughs> ton octopuses, I'm in trouble. Mm-hmm. So, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But what was fascinating then is you know, eventually, uh, the guy at the carcass, who's a physician, he cuts off a sample of the tissue and he sends it by 1800 mail to Verrill in Washington. And when it arrives in a few weeks, Verrill opens up this canister and he immediately smells rancid whale oil. And he knows instantly he's made a mistake. This is a beat up whale carcass. And the tendrils must just be tendons and things like that. And so he publishes a retraction, um, you know, immediately in the same year in, in the journal science that, uh, octopus giganteus doesn't exist, but, um, you know, monsters don't die that easily. And, uh, so, you know, come the 1970s, someone unearths this sample that's in the Smithsonian and the tissue is examined again. And this was a guy who published in the journal Cryptozoology. <laughs> His name was yeah, Wood. And, and he, says, he says, oh, no, it's definitely, it's definitely uh, not mammal tissue uh, using sort of microscopic histology techniques. And then later, 
oh, I want to say the late ni- 1998, maybe 99, 2000, right in there, uh, someone gets another sample, another bit of the same sample of tissue and looks at some of the um, protein analysis and everything and says, it's not mammalian protein, it's definitely mollusk, or it's not mollusk protein, it's definitely mammal protein. Right. And so, you know, you get this debate, but but basically there's no reason to believe this was, you know, modern science can look at this and say exactly what Daryl knew just by smelling the tissue. It's a dead whale. Mm-hmm. And, and other, mm-hmm. other uh, examples of this have washed up all over the world you know, including in Australia and, uh, they're, they're called blobsters or, or globsters now. And, um, they're always some sort of very large vertebrate, either, uh, a beat up whale or maybe like a, a shark, a basking shark or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it was, it was a fun story to read. And just, to you know, I was letting the listeners know it, it's not, like I said, just octopus facts. You get stuff about that and, and octopus giganteus. So my question is, what is the largest octopus we know of? Is it the giant Pacific octopus? Yeah, it is the giant Pacific yeah. octopus. Uh, they're, they're the largest uh, species of octopus in the world. And they get upwards of 100, 100 pounds or so. And, you know, that's plenty big. That's plenty mm-hmm. big. Um, but it's not, it's not a couple of tons. Yeah. Yeah, no, not quite. <laughs> that, they're not going to take down the bridge over the Tacoma Narrows. Yeah, I know. I've, I've been across that bridge. Beautiful part of the country. Yeah, it's gorgeous. So what what is it about octopus that captures our imagination? Like I said, uh, Octonation, they've got 500,000 people following that group and millions of fans around the world. It's, it, it, it's big because people love them. What is it about them that, that people just fall in love with them? I, I think they occupy this, this sort of liminal space that I tried to explore in many things under a rock. They're simultaneously uh, very identifiable. They've got these great big eyes. They're intelligent. They've got, they've got limbs that can sucker onto things and manipulate them. They're very uh, tactile and curious. And so we just sort of identify with them. They're like a, you know, like a, um, a wet, slimy kitten, right? But at the same time, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they have suckers and they're covered in slime and they have these kind of ropey arms that you don't quite know what they can do. Their body is totally unfamiliar. Everything about them is sort of a little bit alien. They got a beak down under their mouth, but exactly where is their mouth anyway? You know, they don't have a nose that you can see. They don't really have a face that you can see. Um the thing that looks like a brain isn't a brain. It's a big gut sack. And so they're simultaneously cute and endearing and horrifying and slightly scary and intimidating. And I think we just yeah. love that. That is just fun. Well, their, their biology is fascinating. And we, it, I, I, I sense the giant Pacific octopus episode coming very soon uh, for me and Angie, because I, I definitely want to learn more about them. I, we did do the blue ringed octopus, one of the most venomous animals on earth. One of the things I think I remember, and maybe I could just ask you about this because you're the expert, nine brains. Is that true? Is it just the, the, the nerves in each arm? Are they that well organized to be considered a quote unquote brain or, you know, how would you describe that? Yeah. You know, it's it's just maybe true enough that the media loves to latch onto it and and expand on it. So, you know, what is a brain, right? It's the it's the place where an individual is controlled. And um, in humans, we have about ninety five percent of all the nerve cells in our body are in our brain. So it's it's mostly that's where our our nervous system lives is in the head, in the brain. So what's the number for the octopus? Well, it's about, it's about a third, you know, it's about 30%. Mm-hmm. And where are the rest? Well, the rest of the neurons are distributed out into the arms and the skin and the body. And the way it's organized in each arm, there's a long uh, central uh, axial, gang, uh, axial nerve. And so that axial nerve runs the length of, of each arm. And it's a little bit like our spinal cord in that um, each pair of suckers has a ganglion 
Well, each sucker has a ganglion in its base, and each pair of suckers has a, a, a ganglion uh, that serves the pair of suckers, and they all run into that axial nerve cord that runs along the arm. And then at the base of the arm, there's sort of a, or, or the, uh, all of the arms, there's a ring, uh, the, the, and it, it connects all of the arms. And so there's a lot of neural processing power out in the arms. But part of that is because um, the mollusks, the, the, the cephalopods, have a, a slightly different kind of nerve cell than the humans have. We have a, a myelinated sheath on our, on our nerve cells, and, and the function of that is it makes the nervous signals travel faster. So everything can be referred to the brain and back out at lightning speed. And the octopuses don't have that. And so the nerve cells are just a little bit slowed down. And so it makes it more reasonable to do as much as you can locally rather than, than send it to central control. And so a lot of the power of the, um, the arms is controlled within the arm itself. But that's not quite the same thing as saying the arms have their own brain. Um, and one of the ways you think about this is what would you, yeah. if, if you had nine brains in the animal, would they all agree all the time? Right. Yeah, uh, you know, do you see that? Do you, do you, so, so this is one of the questions that I, I ask about this nine brain idea is do we find ecological circumstances where the arms are pursuing contradictory goals at the same time? And, you know, it just doesn't seem to happen. The mm -hmm. octopus is a well-integrated individual. And that tells me that, you know, whatever this distributed nervous system is, the, the, it's one individual. It functions as a, a unified whole. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Like, you know, how would they agree with each other? You know, they wouldn't. Yeah. And, and why <laughs> would they disagree? Uh, yeah. they, they, their fates are all, their fates are all linked together. You can't have one arm thriving. Um, you know, while the central body is dying, it just doesn't work. No, 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 no. Yeah, their physiology is amazing. And I, one thing, maybe I could ask you real quick, because I was going to ask you in a little bit. My Octopus Teacher, very popular doc documentary. I saw it on Netflix. Just a very touching story. I think a lot of people watched it, to, you know, in, in lockdown and COVID, wherever they were, were in the world. And... Uh, I wanted to get your opinion on it and what you thought about it, but also I remembered when some of the sharks came through, are they able to regenerate their arm tissue? Was that right? I know. I remember that she, she lost an arm or two. She was attacked, but she did survive, but I don't remember if it yeah, regenerated. You're, you're, you're probably referring to this, this episode in that, in that uh, documentary where, uh, uh, a shark attacks the octopus and one of the arms mm -hmm. is torn off. Um, and in mm -hmm. many things under a rock, I relate, you know, sort of the life of, of an octopus that I saw actually in Hawaii, um, a different species. But, uh, you know, this, this octopus that I talk about in many things under a rock had um, lost a couple of arms and had an encounter with a moray eel. And so in that, I mm -hmm. sort of tell this story of, what what this must be like from the octopus's perspective and there's this beautiful video that uh is available online that national geographic uh has it and it was filmed by a scuba diver in um uh oh i forget where but somewhere in the waters around hawaii i forget the place name um mm -hmm. but um it's this stunning video that i was sent once by a journalist and the journalist asked me you know, what do you see happening as this moray eel attacks the octopus? And so I, I did what I usually do with octopus videos, which is I put on my computer, I slow it down so I can watch it frame by frame. And, you know, I watch it so you can see what's happening. And the video opens and you realize the octopus, one, the, the moray eel has seized the octopus by one arm. And then the octopus has two or three other arms wrapped around the moray eel's mouth. So the moray eel can't open its mouth anymore. It's got, the octopus has the eel's nose covered and his eyes covered with suckers. And another mm -hmm. arm is rammed up into the moray eel's gill slit, trying to suffocate it or rip out a gill or who knows what. Mm. And as this video unfolds, it's only 30 seconds long or something like that. But as this video unfolds, the moray 
is thrashing. And you look and see, well, what, what's wrong with the moray? Well, the octopus has grabbed a hold of its tail with another arm and is gradually pulling the, the, the moray eel's tail into contact with its head by the arm creeping up the tail sucker by sucker. And the moray eel can't even swim. It can't breathe or swim or see. And, you know, the, the, the journalist thought, you know, oh, look at this poor octopus getting thrashed by this moray. But at the moment the video opens, the moray is being thrashed by the octopus. So mm -hmm. anyway, to shorten it up a little bit, the moray eel, they have some great tricks themselves. And this moray ties himself in a knot slips the knot of his own up his own body over his head in order to shove the octopus off of him and in doing so he does rip off that octopus's arm mm -hmm. and then the octopus escapes and the moray is left with you know a morsel and wow. um so you know your question is is basically do, do can those arms regrow and yeah they can mm -hmm. if things go well for that octopus they yeah, can yeah. regrow it takes some time and it, it does sometimes result in some weird, some weird things. I did find once an octopus that had had one of its limbs torn up and it had obviously left a wound that had a substantial bit of tissue on either side of a deep cut. And the octopus had begun healing from both sides of that. And so when I found it, it had, it had one arm that came out of its body and then split into two arm tips. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, you know, it kind of had, had an arm that with, with, you know, two tips growing out of it. It's wild. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, it, 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 it fascinates me because I, you know, back when I was doing my research and looking at regenerative medicine and I know, you know, looking at, uh, human medicine and, and prolonging life and whatnot. And we're looking at scientists are looking at the, that process, the genetics behind it, you know, how that arm regrows. I know axolotls are, are heavily studied for that too. So it is interesting to, yeah. with, with octopus, but what got me about that story is their behavior. I think, you know, being a behavior ecologist, you, you've seen some fascinating things, I guess, which behaviors surprise you the most? I mean, recently, I don't know. I've seen it on social media this octopus smacking a fish just for the heck of it. But, you know, and, and I know in the book you talk about tool use, but what behaviors about them just is like, wow, you would have never expected it from, from you know, a cephalopod. Well, you know, they're smart animals and, and everybody wants that sort of clever Hans story, you know, of, of the animal doing something truly astounding. But I, I think it's really interesting, the behaviors and the way they unfold in their day-to-day -day life, right? And, you know, in this context of, of losing a limb, for example, one of them, you know, if, if, a, if, if I were to lose a limb, you know, probably the biggest danger immediately to me is, is just the, that wound bleeding out, right? Mm -hmm. Just, it just, your heart keeps pumping and all the blood leaves your body and that bleeding out, you got to stop the bleeding. Any amputation, that's a huge thing. But for an octopus, if, if you cut an octopus, their, their blood will spurt out. It, intriguingly enough, um, cephalopod blood is not red like, um, like mammal blood. When it, when it bleeds, it's, it's blue because it's a copper-based blood, uh, not an not a, uh, iron-based blood. But, but anyway, one of the things they can do is muscularly clamp off their own veins and arteries to stop the bleeding. So that it, the bleeding stops very quickly after uh, an injury to an octopus. And then they're able to, by contracting their muscles, to cover up and reduce the wound size with their own skin. And that's mm -hmm. the first step to healing. And, and they do it behaviorally. And it happens within, you know, a, a minute or two of the wound itself. And so that's one example of kind of an amazing behavior. Another one that I sort of have always been fascinated with is their foraging behavior. And, you know, they do a lot of interesting things when they're foraging, but the, the very first bit of foraging is often not discussed in terms of how interesting octopuses are. And that is, how do they choose what to eat? And one of the things that I develop in one of the chapters of, of Many Things Under a Rock 
uh, which again, these were the things we were finding under the rocks, mm-hmm. is, um, has to do with how they choose their food. And so the octopuses, when they eat, they throw their prey remains outside of their den. So you get a little uh, sample of their diet just by finding them. Uh, you don't have to touch the animal or anything. You just pick up the prey remains. And one of the things we discovered when we started looking at this in a lot of detail is that the octopuses, maybe unsurprisingly, they prefer the larger species of prey, like larger crabs over smaller crab species. But within each species, they also prefer to catch and eat the larger individuals over the smaller individuals. All right. That's not shocking. It's just smart. It's smart foraging. But if you think about that, what that means for the octopus, that means they're exercising judgment. They're trying to figure out, you know, how big is this animal? But they're also exercising restraint. They have to go past the smaller individuals and not collect them and wait for the bigger individuals and collect those. And so they're, or, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe they're catching the little ones and when they get a bigger one, they drop the little one. But either way, they're exercising judgment and restraint. And they can hold a lot of prey at once. So I seriously doubt they're dropping something they've already caught. I think they're mm-hmm. passing by the little ones because they know a bigger one's out there. You know, and, and so this means the animal is able to exercise judgment and restraint in its day-to-day foraging. And there's this famous little test called the marshmallow test that um, mm-hmm. we've sometimes given developmental psychologists, give it to children, right? And the idea is, you put a kid in the room, you give him a marshmallow, and you say, look, you can eat this marshmallow, or I'm going to go out and get another one. And if you don't eat this one before I come back, you can have both of them. So show me some restraint, you get a bigger reward. It's the same thing the octopuses are doing. And, and we laugh because the kids at a, cert, at a certain development, when they're really young, they just eat the first marshmallow. They have no <laughs> ability to wait. Yeah. And when, when they get old enough, they can wait just fine. It's not hard at all. But in the middle, there's this magic period where the, the child is developing the ability to exercise restraint. And they do all these comical behaviors to avoid being tempted and to allow themselves to wait when they really want to eat. They look away or they, they fiddle with something else or they fidget in their seat or they push the marsh or they just all these things. And so, you know, we know that, um, we know that a cuttlefish can perform a similar weight for the bigger treat kind of thing. Someone, an experimental design has been developed where it could try something equivalent to the marshmallow fish on the cuttlefish, which is a relative of the octopus. And then they pass it. And I'm sure I'm sure we haven't done it yet, but I'm sure an octopus could could pass a, a marshmallow delay test as well. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. Like I said, it, this is what you get in the book. You get these stories and just things that fascinate you about this creature. They just are, and they're hilarious. Listen to you talk about it. Hey there, fellow super moms. This is Angie from All Creatures Podcast. Are you juggling a million things at once like me? Between work and podcast deadlines, after school sports, taking care of the kids, and of course, all of our pets. Finding time to cook nutritious lunches and dinners can feel like an impossible mission in my house. But guess what? I've found the ultimate lifesaver, Factor. Picture this, delicious, chef-crafted meals delivered right to your doorstep, ready to heat and eat whenever you need them. No more stressing about what to cook or spending hours in the kitchen. With over 35 mouth-watering options each week, including keto, calorie smart, vegan, and more, Factor has something for everyone in the family. My husband and I are loving the vegan options, and we are also enjoying their amazing add-ons, from snacks to yummy smoothies. Factor isn't just convenient, it's budget-friendly too. So say goodbye to expensive takeout. Because Factor meals are dietitian approved and cost less than dining out. Plus, you can customize your plan to fit your busy schedule and pause or reschedule deliveries whenever you need to. And the best part? Zero prep, zero mess. 
Just pop a meal in the microwave and boom, lunch or dinner is served. So choose Factor because every super mom like you deserves a break from meal planning without compromising taste and health. And we all need more quality time with the creatures we love. Head to factormeals.com slash creatures50 and use code creatures50 to get 50% off. That's code creatures50 at factormeals.com slash creatures50 to get 50% off. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Superlight Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And, because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. One of the things you talk about is... in. in we always think of octopus being solo by themselves, but you said octopus is like closeness. What do you mean by that? Well, it's fascinating. So the, the giant Pacific octopus, for example, that's the one that lives up in Alaska that I do so much work with. And we keep them in aquariums. And when they come into the aquarium from the wild, right, they are not familiar with the aquarium environment. And so they become very nocturnal. They hide out. They don't want to be bothered. We put food in there. We leave them alone. But eventually, in a matter of a couple of days to a week, they, they're constantly learning about their environment. And they realize that the interesting things show up in their environment when the people come in. And it's like a switch goes off. They switch from being shy and retiring and avoiding people to just being intrigued by you. And so... You know, you're trying to clean the tank. They're trying to steal your cleaning brush. You'd like to give them some food. They come right up to the surface, turn themselves sucker side up on the surface of the water. Then they're just feeling around waiting for the food to come. And um, they quickly develop an intense interest and curiosity in interacting with people. And, um, you know, you mentioned nature documentaries. There's a, uh, the BBC put out a great documentary uh, a few years ago called uh, The Octopus in My House. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, that was my house that the octopus was in. And oh, it's okay. a wonderful documentary if, you, if, you'd mm-hmm. like to, if you'd like to see it. Um, but one of the things that happened while we had uh, this big aquarium in the house is, is my daughter, Laurel, was helping me with the, the aquarium care and everything. She's the mm-hmm. artist for many things under the rock. She's a... Uh, under a rock. She's the one who um, drew the pictures and things. Oh yeah. And, they're beautiful. Uh, yeah. 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 Oh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. She was amazed by how much the octopus wanted to hold on to her and interact with her. And it's, this was a different species, not the giant Pacific octopus, but the uh, octopus cyanea, the day octopus. But um, you know, the, the animal's name was Heidi and Heidi just loved to come up to the tank and uh, hold on to Laurel, just explore the skin. And they never seem to want to let go. They're content to just kind of hold hands with you for, for ages. And um, Heidi wanted a lot of interaction. And I had set up my desk so that I could see the aquarium from where I sat working on the computer and writing and all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And um, out of the corner of my eye, while my attention was on the computer, I would see you know, this movement. And I would look up and Heidi would be crawling up and down the wall of the tank at the closest spot to me, trying to catch mm-hmm. my eye. And then when she <laughs> caught my eye, she'd stop and just look at me. And she wanted me to get up and interact with her. You know, she wanted me to come and play. And this was her way of sort mm-hmm. of soliciting interaction. So I got very intrigued by this. Why is this animal that's so famously solitary? 
Mm-hmm. Why is it so good at interacting with people? What's, you know, what, yeah. what's going on, right? And somewhere along the way, I heard about this site out in Australia, south of Sydney, uh, nicknamed Octopolis. Mm-hmm. And I got in touch with the people who were are reporting on that and I was able to go down with them and, and work with them on this site. And it's a place where the, um, the gloomy octopus, octopus tetricus, uh, they live there and it's a place where there's a very soft silty bottom across the bottom of the ocean and and there's not much natural occurring shelter um but there's a lot of scallops Mm -hmm. it's very rich in scallops and Mm -hmm. there's also a lot of predators that are dangerous swimming around and so it's not a good place for octopuses but in the middle of this little site called octopolis Somebody ages ago, we don't know who, we don't know what, dropped a big piece of metal and it landed on the bottom. It's all encrusted over with marine growth and half sunk into the substrate. But an octopus made a den under it. And what we think happened is the octopuses went out and caught all this food, lots of scallops, brought it back to the den to safety to eat, and then threw the shells out the door. And you do this enough Mm -hmm. times and the shell bed began to build up. And from there, another octopus was able to make a den, not under the artifact, but in the bed of scallop shells created by the earlier octopuses. And this provided just enough stability that the animal could make a den in what was otherwise a silt bed that wouldn't support a Mm -hmm. den. And so now, if you go there now, you have this, this larger a bed of shell hash from the octopus's feeding and there's you know a dozen or more octopuses and they're what's interesting is they're kind of forced together by lots of food and lots of predators and very little shelter so they mm-hmm. end up being very near each other and of course they're they're also octopuses there's males and females there so there's some interest in mating going on but they interact with one another thousands of times a day. And this huge level of interaction was just not something we ever really expected to see in octopuses. And when you see it in the wild and you realize the octopuses have this capacity to do this, it really makes you wonder, you know, how widespread and how uh, deep, you know, in evolutionary time must be all of the foundations for building the ability to interact with others in animals, all animals, right? And so this thing that we've thought, oh, the humans are the most social animals. We come from Mm -hmm. social animals, something like chimpanzees. This is the major innovation of human, um, of humankind is sociability. But you look at, you look at the gloomy octopuses chucking shells at one another in, um, in Octopolis, and you kind of realize, no, this is something that has very, very deep evolutionary roots. No, I, the, the, you kind of laugh about that too. Yeah, I mean, the the the, the more we learn, and and especially behavior, that's why behavior is a big part of of what we talk about because the behavior of these animals are so incredible, and like culture now is is a talk. I I, I hear it all the time in the last few years. You know, just watching. Uh, we've got a good, really good interview coming out in a few weeks and the sequence of killer whales and, and the, the, you know, talking about um, this program coming up. Anyways, the, you know, how they're teaching the young, all these things, these right. fascinating behaviors yeah. that, that, that you're studying and, and with the octopus and other species. Oh, I could talk to you for hours about the octopus, but just, just to, to kind of change uh, the subject a little bit because they are fascinating and, and you read those stories in your book. So again, you know, you, you will not be disappointed if you purchase many things under, under a rock. It, it's a fascinating uh, look at octopus and their lives. But one of the things I want to ask you, and, and you mentioned earlier that you've been involved with climate change. And recently we do plastic free July. We focus on the oceans. And one of the species we covered this year was the gray whale. And how climate change up in your neck of the woods is devastating to them. And we've seen this massive die-off because the ice has retreated. I know you touch upon it in the book, but 
globally, how is it affecting octopuses, you know, these warming oceans, but also in, in Alaska, you know, are you seeing that? Because you do talk about the, the paralarvae and all those things, but just to kind of sum it up for, for our, our listeners, you know, how are they going to fare as this world, you know, changes? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, there's this beautiful paper that came out several years back now, and it looked at data from post-World War II, so the beginning of the 1950s, through 1990 or 2000 maybe, right? And the world is warming in that period, but it's, it's uh, you know, it's moving from a cool point to an intermediate point, right? And the oceans are warming. And uh, in that period, globally, this paper was looking at cephalopod catch. But the other thing that's happening over that same period of time is the world's fisheries on the fin fish are growing. We are catching more and more and more fish. And if you look at the cephalopods globally, squids and octopuses all around the world, you know, hundreds of, of fisheries, uh, it seems like they're doing fine. They're growing in abundance over that period, becoming more common as the world warms, but also as we remove from the oceans such massive amounts of biomass of fish that we're removing their competitors, we're removing their predators. And the world is warming from relatively cool to an intermediate temperature. Mm -hmm. Now, the oceans this year, this summer, right, are we, we reached a global ocean maximum new world record. And we reached it in August, which is not when the oceans globally are at their hottest. It takes a while mm. for that summer heat mm. to get into the water. And so I, I gather the peak ocean temperature is usually in March, but we've been going up since March this mm. year. So, so, you know, I started looking at what's going on with the giant Pacific octopuses in Alaska and in the North Pacific off of Washington and, um, Collecting some data from, from uh, the, the kind of data that I collected was, was um, visual searching. So we're not looking at fisheries records. We're looking at mm -hmm. records of people who are specifically out there looking for octopuses and counting them. And this is what I did for 20 years uh, as part of my research. In, in the same sites, every year we go back and count octopuses. And what we find if we look from 2000 to 2020 is that warmer winters are followed, unusually warm winters are followed by unusually low octopus recruitment. So that when, when there are, when the oceans warm up, you get fewer octopuses. And this is true in three completely different data sets. My data set, another data set from scuba divers uh, collected by the Seattle Aquarium, another uh, data set from scuba divers uh, collected by the... Um, Reef, uh, which is a, a volunteer um, biological survey with scuba divers uh, organization. And, and we look at all of those. And after warm winters, uh, you have a, a fewer octopuses a few years later. A few, you know, the octopus joke. And so what's happening, what I think is happening, when it warms up, it's just bad for everybody in the winter mm -hmm. because it means there's no nutrients coming up into the surface waters. So you have no no phytoplankton being nurtured by the nutrients. And that means everybody's having a hard time. There's less food for octopuses to grow. And also there's less food for octopus predators, which then come in and eat the, the baby octopuses. Mm -hmm. So if you put those two stories together, the story of as the oceans were warming from the 1950s into about 1990, 2000, Things seem to be getting good, but we're also removing a lot of fish. And the story of in Alaska, as the oceans get warm from 2000 to 2020, we see a crash in octopuses. What this suggests to me is that, you know, there's less food in the ocean these days. Mm -hmm. And as we remove that food from the ocean, it makes it harder for octopuses to grow. As we warm the oceans up, we're not just making marine heat waves we're doing that 
But we're not just doing that. We're also changing the way nutrients circulate in the ocean. And we're interfering with some of the ocean food chains. Um, and we know that's going to be bad for all kinds of marine life, including octopuses. Um, so we may still see some rain shifts where octopuses move from, you know, uh, move north as the waters warm. So some areas will see increases in octopuses. But globally, we're going to reach a point, if we haven't already reached it, where um, it's just not going to be good for octopuses. And the other challenge with global climate change is, is that warming oceans are also acidifying oceans. We put CO2 into the air, CO2 dissolves in seawater, and it makes acid. And so as the pH of the ocean changes, it gets harder for marine animals to grow. And that's going to affect octopus food even before it affects octopuses themselves because octopuses rely on species that require that pH in order to grow well. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, we're going to see a lot of shifts in the marine environment. We really are. And I, I don't know how fast they're going to come, but this year it feels like very fast. Oh, it's, it, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm in New Zealand and we're, we're having a mild winter, even though it was near freezing this morning, it, it's still mild for us and hearing all the news back home in the States or in Europe. 101 degrees off uh, the Keys in Florida. That's up to 38, 39C. Yeah. The waters are just boiling. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine any of the, the animals trying to you know survive in that. Uh, yeah, that's, less, that's very know. hot. There, there's some interesting, there's not a lot of data on this, but there's a couple of interesting studies that looked at um, what happens to uh, baby, paralarval octopus survival as the temperatures grow up, go up paralarval octopus and there's a there's what's called a thermal neutral zone it's an area where a temperature change the stress added to an octopus is basically flat as you move the temperature around within the thermal neutral zone but when you leave the thermal neutral zone then the stress becomes very very strong very very quickly and so there was one paper that showed with a change of about a half a degree as you leave the thermal neutral zone a half a degree in water temperature resulted in a 30% increase in more, uh, mortality of, of the young. But a 1.5 degree change in the water temperature resulted in 100% mortality of the young. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. there's, there's a range where it's not bad. Nothing much changes. Everybody can cope. When you leave that range... It goes from not bad to catastrophic in a very small uh, degree of change. And so that's the concern is we don't know where those boundaries are. And, um, you know, uh, my mom lives in New Mexico and she's sitting down there in a hundred plus degree heat mm -hmm. that has been going on for, you know, a month and a half now. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's unheard of. Well, like you say, like you opened up with, as people that don't believe in climate change, uh, hopefully is getting fewer in number, um, you know, but it's, again, it's, it's, it's interesting since I, I moved away and now I live in a, in a country that believes in it and politicians on both sides of the aisle, the, the debate is on what to do uh, with that. But, let, you know, thankfully down here in New Zealand, we're progressive where I know in the States is kind of a, a jam lock, unfortunately, but at least Europe and other parts of the world are, are waking up. But do you oh, dare ask this question? Because we're wrapping up and, I, and I'm just trying to, what does the future look like for our oceans and for octopus? If, if I guess, you know, you've probably done some projections. If we don't change, you know, is everything going to collapse? Is it, you know, are we seeing these food webs being so disintegrated that, you know, we're going to lose mass amounts of species or is there able to, we're able to turn this around? Well. You know, I, I I remain hopeful. I think I think we're going to see a lot of change. Um, what that looks like, I think you know we ought to be worrying about about how hard it is going to be for us to cope, and we will cope. You know, I, I'm optimistic that we will cope, um, but at some cost, and I kind of mourn that cost because, you know. Um, I'm already 
seeing in the last five years, um, I have had to give up my annual surveys of octopuses, but I go out every year and take a look around. And it's shocking how much harder it is to find octopuses. I used to find them in the intertidal. That was where I did my work. And the surface waters were cool enough that we found them there with um, incredible regularity. Year after year after year for 20 years, no problem at all going to these sites. And there was always lots of sign of octopus and always octopuses. And in the last five years, I've gone back. And as it's gotten warmer, you know, we're, we're going to places now. Some years we don't see any sign of octopuses at all. It's just a place that had always had dens and middens and things to find. Nothing. Uh, this year I went out and, you know, we, we did have some signs of octopuses, but not, not at the level that we are used to. And I think what's happening is, you know, the octopuses are doing better in the colder water. These are cold adapted animals. And, and so that's not on the surface anymore. It's not at scuba diving depth anymore. It's down at a uh, hundred feet or 200 feet. And so, you know, for my own, in my own career, uh, you can already begin to mourn that these animals are less visible to me, you know, right now. Uh, they're, I'm less able to walk the beaches and find them. They're still there. They're not gone. Um, but, you know, they're showing up in shrimp pots. They're being pulled up from 300 feet. Yeah. So, you know, they're less abundant. And I think, I think this is a major thing to think about in terms of what are humans doing to the ocean? Um, we're harvesting, we're changing habitats, we're warming, we're acidifying. All of that makes wildlife just less abundant. Um, and, you know, the oceans will adapt if we give them 100,000 years, a million years. They're going to be chock full of life again. Um, but they're going to go through a period when they're not so chock full. And uh, we might miss that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's why we do our podcast and have wonderful uh, authors and professors like like yourself on that that can talk about this and, and enlighten our viewers. I, I I'm gonna have one final question. You know where our listeners can get the book in any social media or, or where they can follow you. But some of the things in the book, octopuses dreaming. Do they dream? Do they experience motions? Uh, their self defense, their tool use. Uh, and there is some conservation always weaved in there too. So this book is is chock full of that for anybody that has interest, which I, I believe anybody listening to this does. But again, the book is Many Things Under a Rock, The Mysteries of the Octopuses. It's out of W.W. Norton and Company. Uh, David, where can they find the book in, in any social media or ways they can follow you? Yeah, my webpage is alaskaoctopus.com. Okay, and um, I'm trying to keep that uh, active and and um, post media there and things. There's links there to the um, various publishers. If you're in Australia, and New Zealand, uh, there's different links than if you're in the United States. Um, it's out from uh, Norton um, in the U.S. and Canada. It's out from uh, Hoder and Stout in uh, New Zealand, Australia, and the U.K. and um, it should be available through any uh, of your favorite booksellers, I would think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. AlaskaOctopus.com. I will put the, the link in the show notes. But Dr. David Scheel, professor of marine biology at Alaska Pacific University and author of Many Things Under a Rock, The Mysteries of Octopuses. Thank you so much for, for sharing this hour with us. I think this is yeah, especially if you go to Octonation and, and go talk to Warren, he'd keep you on for hours and hours, I'm sure, talking about these wonderful creatures. But, you know, and I just always like to say thank you for what you do, the the work. I, I know from being an academic myself, you don't feel appreciated at times. and It doesn't matter. Like, that's not why we do it. But thank you for what you do for these animals and your research and enlightening the world to the plight of these animals and the octopus it, it does make a difference and uh just just thank you for 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 me uh for my co-host angie who couldn't join us today and and our listeners well thank you it's uh it's been a wonderful career all right take care take care
Are you looking for a podcast your whole family can enjoy together?、Uh-huh. Check out Culture Kids Podcast. Our adventures will ignite your curiosity for culture, traditions, languages, geography, and even pop culture with interviews from guests all over the world. Through each episode, we aim to help children become empathetic, creative leaders in their communities and help them see the beauty in our differences. And that's Culture Kids Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.